0: Section 7 of Mark Twain in the New York Times, Part 2, 1880 to 1889. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain in the New York Times, Part 2, Section 7, June 9, 1881. Veterans of the Potomac. Read by John Greenman. Veterans of the Potomac. The Annual Meeting and Festivities this article has been edited to include only pertinent references to mark twain's participation hartford filled with members of the army of the potomac the parade and business meetings the banquet addresses by general sherman mark twain and others hartford june eighth the heavy rainstorm of tuesday morning probably kept away many who expected to attend the twelfth annual reunion of the society of the army of the potomac the attendance nevertheless was fully up to the average and the rain ceased so that the parade ceremonies were not interfered with although the streets were muddy the corps meetings took place at the capitol at ten o'clock and while they were in progress the first regiment c n g was reviewed by Governor Bigelow, assisted by General Sherman and members of his staff. It was intended to have Secretary of War Lincoln attend the review and participate in the parade, but by some oversight he received no invitation from the Governor, and finally made his way to the Opera House in company with General Horace Porter, escorted by Mr. Edgar T. Wells, who entertained them. The procession left the Capitol for the Opera House soon after noon. It consisted of the first regiment the governor's foot guard the Tibbets corps of troy grand army posts from philadelphia and springfield members of the army and navy club of connecticut the members of the army of the potomac and carriages containing the governor prominent soldiers and disabled veterans generals burnside wright franklin slocum mcmahon miles and others chose to march through the mud with their respective corps. The banquet took place at nine o'clock. At that hour the Society of the Army of the Potomac, the Army and Navy Club of Connecticut, and the invited guests marched into Allen Hall, which was elegantly decorated. The galleries and boxes were filled with ladies and gentlemen. The floor of the hall was occupied by tables with seats for about four hundred persons. The whole interior of the hall presented a brilliant spectacle a member of the fifth corps called for three cheers for the generous and patriotic citizens of hartford grace was said by the rev j h twichell of this city soon after the company were seated secretary lincoln and general sherman entered and were greeted with enthusiastic applause by the soldiers and by the people in the galleries general h g wright president of the society presided secretary lincoln sitting at his immediate right and general hawley and governor bigelow at his left generals burnside sickles devons slocum and other prominent generals daniel doherty ex-governor jewell mark twain mayor bulkley governor littlefield of rhode island and other invited guests also occupied seats at this table which extended nearly the entire breadth of the hall in front of the stage soon after ten o'clock general wright announced the first toast the president of the united states secretary lincoln responded being received with much applause at the close of secretary lincoln's speech general barnum called for three cheers for the worthy and honored son of the great emancipator abraham lincoln they were given with a will the second toast, The United States, was responded to by General Hawley, who spoke eloquently upon the magnificent growth of the nation and its wonderful development since 1861. The toast to The Governors of the States was responded to by Governor Littlefield of Rhode Island. The next toast was The Army and the Navy. General Sherman responded, and was greeted with cheers upon cheers the next toast the state of connecticut was responded to by governor bigelow the toast the city of hartford was responded to by mayor bulkeley and the honorable henry c robinson the toast to the army of the potomac was responded to by general horace porter the next toast the benefit of judicious training was responded to by mark twain other toasts were as follows the volunteers by general daniel e sickles the orator of the day daniel doherty the poet of the day colonel samuel b sumner the press general nelson a miles mark twain's response to the regular toast the benefit of judicious training mr samuel l clemens mark twain responded as follows let but the thoughtful civilian instruct the soldier in his duties and the victory is sure martin farquhar tupper on the art of war mr chairman i gladly join with my fellow townsmen in extending a hearty welcome to these illustrious generals and these war scarred soldiers of the republic this is a proud day for us and if the sincere desire of our hearts has been fulfilled it has not been an unpleasant day for them i am in full accord sir with the sentiment of the toast for i have always maintained with enthusiasm that the only wise and true way is for the soldier to fight the battle and the unprejudiced civilian to tell him how to do it yet when i was invited to respond to this toast and furnish this advice and instruction i was almost as much embarrassed as i was gratified for i could bring to this great service but the one virtue of absence of prejudice and set opinion still but one other qualification was needed and it was of only minor importance i mean knowledge of the subject therefore i was not disheartened for I could acquire that, there being two weeks to spare. A general of high rank in this Army of the Potomac said two weeks was really more than I would need for the purpose. He had known people of my style who had learned enough in forty-eight hours to enable them to advise an army. Aside from the compliment, this was gratifying because it confirmed an impression i had had before he told me to go to the united states military academy at west point and said in his flowery professional way that the cadets would load me up i went there and stayed two days and his prediction proved correct i make no boast on my own account none all i know about military matters i got from the gentlemen at west point and to them belongs the credit they treated me with courtesy from the first but when my mission was revealed this mere courtesy blossomed into warmest zeal everybody officers and all put down their work and turned their whole attention to giving me military information every question i asked was promptly and exhaustively answered therefore i feel proud to state that in the advice which i am about to give you as soldiers i am backed up by the highest military authority in the land yes in the world if an american does say it west point to begin gentlemen when an engagement is meditated it is best to feel the enemy first that is if it is night for as one of the cadets explained to me you do not need to feel him in the daytime because you can see him then i never should have thought of that but it is true perfectly true in the daytime the methods of procedure are various but the best it seems to me is one which was introduced by general grant general grant always sent an active young man redoubt to reconnoitre and get the enemy's bearings i got this from a high officer at the point who told me he used to be a redoubt on general grant's staff and had done it often when the hour for the battle is come move to the field with celerity fool away no time under this head i was told of a favorite maxim of general sheridan's general sheridan always said if the siege train isn't ready don't wait go by any trains that are handy to get there is the main thing now that is the correct idea as you approach the field it is better to get out and walk this gives you a better chance to dispose of your forces judiciously for the assault get your artillery in position and throw out stragglers to the right and left to hold your lines of communication against surprise see that every hod carrier connected with a mortar battery is at his post they told me at the point that napoleon despised mortar batteries and never would use them he said that for real efficiency he wouldn't give a hatful of brickbats for a ton of mortar. However, that is all he knew about it. Everything being ready for the assault, you want to enter the field with your baggage to the front. This idea was invented by our renowned guest, General Sherman. They told me that General Sherman said that the trunks and baggage make a good protection for the soldiers but that chiefly they attract the attention and rivet the interest of the enemy, and this gives you an opportunity to whirl the other end of the column around and attack him in the rear. I have given a good deal of study to this tactic since I learned about it, and it appears to me it is a rattling good idea. Never fetch on your reserves at the start. This was Napoleon's first mistake at Waterloo— Next he assaulted with his bomb-proofs and ambulances and embouchures, when he ought to have used a heavier artillery. Thirdly, he retired his right by ricochet, which uncovered his pickets, when his only possibility of success lay in doubling up his center, flank by flank, and throwing out his chevaux de frise, by the left oblique to relieve the skirmish line and confuse the enemy if such a maneuver would confuse him and at west point they said it would it was about this time that the emperor had two horses shot under him how often you see the remark that general so-and-so at such and such a battle had two or three horses shot under him general burnside and many great european military men as i was informed by a high artillery officer at west point have justly characterized this as a wanton waste of projectiles and he impressed upon me a conversation in the tent of the prussian chiefs at Gravelotte, in the course of which our honored guest just referred to general burnside observed that if you can't aim a horse so as to hit the general with it shoot it over him and you may bag something on the other side whereas a horse shot under a general does no sort of damage i agree cordially with general burnside and heaven knows i shall rejoice to see the artillerists of this land and of all lands cease from this wicked and idiotic custom at West Point they told me of another mistake at Waterloo, namely, that the French were under fire from the beginning of the fight till the end of it, which was plainly a, a most effeminate and ill-timed attention to comfort and a foolish division of military strength, for it probably took as many men to keep up the fires as it did to do the fighting it would have been much better to have had a small fire in the rear and let the men go there by detachments and get warm and not try to warm up the whole army at once all the cadets said that an assault along the whole line was the one thing which could have restored napoleon's advantage at this juncture and he was actually rising in his stirrups to order it when a settler burst at his side and covered him with dirt and debris, and before he could recover, Wellington opened a tremendous and devastating fire upon him from a monstrous battery of vivandiere and the star of the great captain's glory set to rise no more. The cadet wept while he told me these mournful particulars. When you leave a battlefield always leave it in good order remove the wreck and rubbish and tidy up the place however in the case of a drawn battle it is neither party's business to tidy up anything you can leave the field looking as if the city government of new york had bossed the fight when you are traversing the enemy's country in order to destroy his supplies and cripple his resources you want to take along plenty of camp followers. The more the better. They are a tremendously effective arm of the service, and they inspire in the foe the liveliest dread. A West Point professor told me that the wisdom of this was recognized as far back as scripture times. He quoted the verse. He said it was from the New Revision and was a little different from the way it reads in the old one. I do not recollect the exact wording of it now, but I remember that it wound up with something about such and such a devastating agent being as terrible as an army with bummers. I believe I have nothing further to add but this the west pointers said a private should preserve a respectful attitude toward his superiors and should seldom or never proceed so far as to offer suggestions to his general in the field if the battle is not being conducted to suit him it is better to resign by the etiquette of war it is permitted to none below the rank of newspaper correspondent to dictate to the general in the field end of section seven june ninth eighteen eighty one veterans of the potomac the annual meeting and festivities read by john greenman